Good morning, Bethel. I'm really looking forward to diving into God's Word here together. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's bow our hearts together and come before God as we prepare to hear from His Word. Gracious, merciful God, the God of heaven and earth, the God whom we can call our Heavenly Father, we love you. We have been singing praise to you. We worship you. We want to offer our whole selves up to you as our living sacrifices to you. And we want to ask now that you would speak. We are your servants and we are eager to hear. Holy Spirit, would you apply the truth that we're going to hear today? Would you do heart surgery upon our souls today so that we might hear, we might obey, we might respond and be transformed? In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The author of the famous novel series, Chronicles of Narnia, his name was C.S. Lewis, wrote this in another book called The Problem of Pain. He said, a recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. Can you think of a more countercultural statement than what C.S. Lewis has put down there in our day and age. Can you think of something that runs in greater contradiction to the chorus of our age? The message of our day is we are good people. We live alongside of our neighbors and coworkers are generally good people, right? To solve our problems, what do we need to do? Well, we need to look inside and discover the good that is inside. The, the problems with our world, what are they? Well, the problems with our world is that we have things oppressing us, holding us back, restricting from us, from allowing to just discover the good that is within us and to be the good people that we are all inclined to be. Like a salmon swimming upstream to spawn against the current, this statement from C.S. Lewis runs in direct contradiction and opposition to the rushing currents of our day. A recovery of the old self, old sense of sin is essential. Christ takes it for granted that men and women are bad. And this may run upstream to our day, but what Lewis is talking about here in this statement exactly dovetails with what we are going to see from God's Word in our study today as we continue journeying through the book of Romans. Our text today is going to push us to ask some introspective questions. Are you conscious of your sin? Do you see how sick sin has made you? And I don't just say this from the perspective of like, as if I am included in some kind of like ivory tower looking down. These are questions that are going to come out of God's word that are challenging my heart right in the midst of this with you. God's word today is probing and saying, Alan, are you conscious of your sin, of just how much sin there is, of just how bad it is, of just how sick 
sin has made you. And my guess is, as we hear these questions, our backs start to kind of go up, right? Uh, our, our backs feel like they're being bristled. Our arms start to cross. Our, our brows start to scowl. Who, who do you think? How do you? And, and, and we do this sort of like three-step little dance. When, when we start to get confronted with this, when the conviction starts to push in upon our hearts and our souls, we do this little kind of three-step dance. Tell me if you find yourself in this. It, it starts first with the comparison game. As conviction starts to come in, we kind of, you know, look to the left at him over there. We look to the right at her over there. And we, and we, and we say, you know what? Well, yeah, I'm not perfect, but, but I, like, com- compared to him and his kids, like, my, my, I've got nothing wrong. Compared to, do you know how she talks? Do you know what she did? And, and we start with this comparison game with those around us. Next comes to the deflection and sort of snapping back on the attack. You're going to try and call me out? Well, well, what about you? Do, do you know what you have done? I, the way you responded, the way you have acted, the way you talked, and how dare you come and attack me? How dare you criticize me? What about you? Once we move from the comparison game to the, you know, the deflect and attack back, then it turns around into step number three of our little get out from under conviction dance, which is we deny. We have pride overcome our hearts. We downplay, well, I'm not really that bad. What I did wasn't really that big of a deal. I don't really think it was that out of line. I mean, it was, and then we downplay, downplay, deny, deny, until we convince ourselves and blind ourselves to think we're actually just fine. Compare, deflect, deny. This is the little three-step dance that we all do when we find ourselves coming against conviction. And this is exactly what we see coming right out of God's word. See, God knew and he led the apostle Paul to write here into this response that we all have when conviction starts to come against our hearts. And we're going to see God begin to pull these apart. He wants to expose this dance. He wants to walk through and peel it apart. These three steps that we do And he wants us to help us see through that just how sick sin has made us. But but then here's the big idea, because it's more than just seeing how sick sin has made us. The, The truth that God wants us to embrace is this, to see how sick you are with sin, that that's a gift. God wants to lead us to embrace seeing how sick you and I are with sin, that that is actually a gift for us. That's our big idea today. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, and it begins in verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? We get asked at the beginning. Let me remind us here, just to kind of re-catch us back up to speed briefly, the conversation that's been going on through chapters 1 and 2. 
See, Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christ followers in the ancient city of Rome, a church that has a bunch of people that are from a Jewish background that have come to know and follow Jesus, and a bunch of other people from a non-Jewish, a Gentile background, who have come to know and follow Jesus. And both of them are bringing all of their baggage from their backstories into the church, and they're wrestling through all of this. And chapter one was basically all about, man, the world has just gone completely off the tracks. It's, it's been consumed with just denying and, and going the other way from what God has said. God said, I laid out these tracks for how you are to live and, and the world has chosen to go the other way and, and try and go their own way, except it's colossal chaos and a giant train crash. Chapter two, though, is like, whoa, 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 don't you Jewish people, you religious church people start thinking, well, oh yeah, we're so much better than them because chapter two says all of you have done the exact same thing. The very things you look down your nose at there are the very things that you yourselves have become fallen prey to as well. And so chapter two ends with basically this point. Don't you see? You're all sick. We are all sick. You, me, every single person. Sin has made us so sick. Are you, are you conscious of just how sick with sin you are? And Paul knows how our human hearts respond to conviction like that. We jump into this little three-step dance of, of, you know, we compare, we deflect, we deny. And so he hits head on all three. Verse one begins with the compare, right? We compare ourselves to one another. He's asked, what advantage then is there being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Is this the, the Jews are asking this question because they're looking down on the Gentiles to try and just prove their point? Is this the Gentiles asking this question to try and say, hey, like what, what's wrong with you and try and knock them off their, you know, their pedestal? Is it both? <laughs> Either way, you see the comparison game that's going on here and Paul is trying to dismantle it. Is there anything actually good about being a Jew, about being Jewish? Well, verse 2, much in every way, he cuts right through. Yeah, for sure there's some amazing things about the Jewish people. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. It was the Jews that God gave the Bible to, that God chose to call his people, that he sent his prophets to, that he gave the amazing word of God to. That's amazing, right? That's an amazing thing. The God of the universe would choose one little group of people to be his very own and would give them his book. It's a big deal. Verse 3, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man be a liar as it's written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Do you, do you feel the comparison game kind of going on there? Some of the Jews, somebody's sort of chiming in. He's having this like imaginary conversation trying to think of what the Romans might have been saying. Well, some of the Jews didn't actually believe in Jesus. I know they were given the Bible. But they didn't give their lives to Jesus. They didn't understand that it was pointing towards Jesus. Like, doesn't that, doesn't that show that there's a big problem? No, 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 no. Just because some of the Jews didn't understand what the Old Testament was pointing ahead to doesn't have anything to do with whether God is true 
That doesn't have any comment to do with whether God is faithful. In fact, don't miss this. In his very word, he said this was all going to happen. That's, that's what verse 4, that's why he's quoting. Verse 4 is quoting Psalm 51, verse 4. And, and what Paul is saying here is like, don't you realize like God predicted this was all going to happen and this is just proving the very thing God said was going to happen. God is faithful. But oh, how easy it is to get into the comparison game. When conviction starts to come at our hearts, we get into the look left, look right, comparison game. When God starts to push on the fact that you're sleeping with your girlfriend before you're married, and, and starts to bring conviction upon your heart, then all of a sudden we go to the comparison game and go like, whoa, 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 but, but we're, we're, being, we're being faithful together and we're planning to get married one day. And, and do you have any idea how many people over here and how many of our friends are just like messing around with everybody? We're not doing that. When God starts to push upon our hearts and starts to call out that, you know, talking about somebody behind their backs, well, I'm not gossiping. I just really needed some godly advice to know how to deal with this particular person. But do you, do you know who is really actually quite nasty and talks about people all the time behind their backs? Like, do you know Eva? And we compare ourselves to everybody around us. Friend, when we get confronted with our sin, our first reaction is to jump to the comparison game. Here's the problem. We are all sitting in the lobby of the terminal cancer ward waiting for treatment. And, and we can sit here and we can look around at the people around us and we can look at that person over there who has two hours left in their life because of how far advanced the cancer is. Or we could look at that person right there and see, man, they have two weeks left. And, and compared to me who I've got two years left, like, man, we look down at them, but here's what we miss. We miss the giant sign on the wall that tells us we are all sitting in the lobby of the terminal cancer wing of the hospital because we're all deathly sick. And so it doesn't matter if you look at this person who has two hours or this person has two weeks compared to your two years. Don't we realize the comparison game doesn't matter when we're all deathly sick? After the comparison game comes second step. Remember what it was? Now we start to deflect and we jump on to the attack. Verse 5. But if our righteousness brings about God's, or sorry, our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us, I'm using a human argument, Paul says here, if you were to say that our unrighteousness is a chance for God's amazing righteousness to just burst forward, that, that the gospel allows God's righteousness to just shine forth because it exposes how messed up we are, doesn't that mean God's kind of messed up? 
I mean, this is kind of the human logic that's being used here, but, but if God's righteousness is all about showing how messed up I am and God's righteousness comes out when it shows how messed up I am, then doesn't that mean God is kind of actually rather unjust? Do you see what's going on there? The deflection game. Rather than, than talking about my unrighteousness, now I'm going to turn the finger and point at God. I'm going to go on the attack now. Certainly not, verse 6 says, though. That's not true. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? <laughs> well, why, why not say then, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim we say, well, just let evil, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Paul, Paul knows and has probably even heard this response as he's proclaimed the gospel to other people in lots of different settings. He knows this response that starts to come up in our hearts. This response, once conviction starts to come towards us and call out our unrighteousness, we flip it around and start to go on the attack. We flip it around and say, well, well, if, if doing all this stuff that I'm doing is showing God's glory, well, then maybe I should just live all, just embrace the sin all that much more. Just, you know, go crazy with it because then God's going to see how good it is. And Paul's like, that's not at all what I'm saying. Stop throwing up the smoke screens and the mirrors and the deflections and the avoidance to go on here. It's like Paul, even way back in the day, was dealing with, you know, those like political figures who go on CNN or Fox News and you, you ask them one straightforward question and then they twist it around to mean something completely different and it's like this gigantic spin. I guess there was spin doctors even way back in the day with Paul. Chapters 1 and 2, they bring us to these questions, do you realize truly how sinful you are? Do, do you realize the depth of sickness that sin has brought upon your body and soul? But not just upon your body and soul, but upon our whole world and upon our families and upon our church. Do you realize the depth of sin that is in your life and my life and in our world. One of the things that Natalie and I have been trying to work on for the last number of months is, is trying to release. <laughs> I, I've been trying to release control of my phone. Trying to, and I've been realizing just how much it had consumed me, how much I had just even become without even realizing addicted to it. And I would just, you know, like just zero in and without even realizing, just like scroll and scroll and scroll meaninglessly through social media or checking my emails over and over again or looking at the news or checking the latest scores of the games or just whatever it was, just, just meaninglessly just consume with this time. And, and my wife is so gracious. 
She is so gracious. And she, she would at points just very graciously just ask me, hey, like, Alan, did you just notice how your, your kids were trying to get your attention and you just totally ignored them and they finally just gave up and walked away? Because you were just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And do you know what I do? Do you know what I did when she very graciously brought that up? My response immediately, without even thinking, was just like, well, what, you think I'm on my phone a lot? Well, what about you on your phone? Like, look how much you go. And I just immediately jumped into this second step on the dance, the deflect, the jump onto the attack. When conviction starts to come in, I just jump on and turn it around as if me pointing something else out makes any impact on what's actually going on in my heart. Well, I'm not going to forgive him. Do you know what he did to me? Do you know how he hurt me? Well, well, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, the, the government rips away so much from us already with all these crazy taxes. Like they're not really going to even notice if I'm just, you know, fudging the numbers a little bit when I send in these forms. Well, well, do you know what they do? As if when we jump on the attack and point out someone else, that somehow has any impact on what's actually going on in our hearts. Oh, friends, we are prone to this second step of the dance, the deflect and the attack. But what is really going on within us? What's really going on within our hearts and our souls? Paul is like, to the Jews, to the Gentiles. You're throwing up all these smoke screens. You're throwing up all these distractions. You're trying to deflect. Verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. None of us. We have already made the charge. Jews, Gentiles alike are all under sin. Whatever the backstory, whatever the supposed explanation, whatever the, like, well, what about her comparison to what about her or him comparison to, to I'm going to go on the attack and deflect and try and avoid. Here's the bottom line. We are all under sin. We all are. Which leads to that third and final little dance step we do when conviction starts to come upon our shoulders. We deny and downplay. Our sin isn't really that big of a deal. I, I'm not actually that bad. I didn't actually really do as much as, as much as you said I did. And in our pride, we actually start to believe it. We actually convince ourselves that we aren't really as bad as, and, and I didn't really do anything wrong, and I'm actually pretty, and we, we actually convince our own selves. Our pride blinds us 
to the truth of what's really going on in our souls and in our hearts. And Paul knows this is where we're going to go, and so he pulls out an avalanche of Scripture verses for us to show us you cannot miss this reality, to prove his case, to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is not just making this up and he's not just some grumpy Scrooge or he's not just some some wounded guy with daddy issues that's just trying to bring him against other people, but this is actually true. We really are all poisoned and sick because of sin. It has leaked into every ounce of our being. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. He starts out by quoting here. That whole section is a quotation from Psalm 53. Six times he says, none, not one, no one, no one, not even one in this passage. There is no one who is righteous, no one who is perfect. Every single one of us has turned away and become worthless because of our sin. Verse 13 their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. This is a quote from Psalm 5. Their mouths are like open, rotting, nasty, disgusting, open graves. Filthy, making you want to gag and throw up sort of picture. The poison of vipers is on their lips. The venom of a deadly snake is ready, just dripping from their lips. That's a quote from Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's Psalm 10 here. The world is just full of people where their mouths are just full of bitterness and animosity and, and just vile wickedness coming off of their lips. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. This is a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Every person is just out there looking to live without peace, to walk in the wake of devastation, to cause destruction and distress as much as they possibly can. One final one for good measure. Verse 18, quoting Psalm 36, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They have no respect, no admiration, no appreciation, no awe, no reverence at all for God. What a scathing, description of the world. What a scathing description of humanity. What a scathing description of people. But notice, friends, this is not just talking about somebody at a distance or from a bygone era, but this is talking about me and you. Now, for certain, we jump into deny deny, downplay, downplay, don't we? 
I'm not, I'm not that bad. I'm not, I'm not really nearly as bad as that text says that I am. I haven't, I haven't done that many rotten and vile and wicked and heinous things. I, I know a lot of people actually that I work with, that are my neighbors, that are even within my family, that, that aren't Christians, and yet they seem like really nice people. I mean, the world is full of people who are trying to seek after God, to chase after the divine, to try and pursue something bigger. There's world religions all over the world. How can you possibly say there's no, there's no way? Deny, deny, deny. It's just not true. It's just not accurate. We downplay and we deny. And God knew we would respond this way. That's why I think he puts just an avalanche of verse after verse after verse after verse. Because if there was just like one verse here, just grabbed a little snippet, we'd somehow find a way to wiggle out from underneath it, wouldn't we? To just be like, you know, that's not really true. I'll just kind of push that one to the side. But when he brings this whole like gigantic dump of verses, you just cannot get yourself out from underneath the unavoidable truth of what God is saying here. We intuitively and we by default are like, no, 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 no. I'm not that bad. I'm not, that's not really accurate of me. That's not really fair and true of the people that I know. And we are blinded by our pride. We don't see ourselves rightly. This is what pride does. Pride blinds us from seeing ourselves rightly. When we think of sin... Here's how we often think about it. If if you even agree that you're sinful and that I'm sinful and that sin is around us, here's often the way subtly we think about it. We think about it like it's a demographical fact. You know demographical facts about you and I, right? Like our age, our race, our family of origin, the postal code that we live at. These just these facts that are true about us, for sure. But they're basically like out of our control because what are you going to do about that? It's, it's a true thing, but it's just an abstract truth. And, and that's how many of us, especially if you're someone who's been around church for a while, will subtly think about sin. Yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but it's just this like abstract reality that is true of me, but it's not really that big of a deal. And I don't really need to do that much with it because it's just, it's just a kind of fact out there about me. See, the problem is that's not how sin works. Sin is not an abstract reality out there. Sin is relational. Because God is relational. See, sin at its heart is the denial, the turning our backs, the betrayal of our personal relationship with God. God is not abstract and just, you know, kind of out there nebulous and everything. God is a personal God. God has a name. God is an individual. God has feelings, desires. He has expressed 
his wishes and desires to us. God is personal. And sin is an act of relational denial, relational betrayal to God. So we think, well, if I just pray in general to God out there, that's good enough, right? Because I can just pray in a general sense and God will hear and that's good enough. Question, if on my anniversary, I went and bought some beautiful flowers for my wife, Natalie, and I went and brought those flowers and I was uh, walking down the street, I'm kind of walking home and there's another woman that's walking by and, and you know what? I'm like, well, I got some flowers for my anniversary to give to a woman because I'm married to a woman. And so I'm going to, in general, just give it to this woman walking down the street. And then I walk in the door for my anniversary and see my wife. How's that going to go for me? Well, but, uh, but I gave my gift to a woman. Isn't that I'm married to a woman? Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? That's how we act when we talk about praying to God. Well, if I just pray to God in general, surely that's fine, right? Or we think, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person keeping, you know, some kind of general standard of living. I'm following some pretty good rules of how I am to live. Surely that's good enough, right? To please God. <laughs> Let's say that anniversary night with my wife. I make up this wonderfully spectacular, delicious meal of, of lobster and shrimp. And it's just the most, oh, it smells so good, tastes so good. And then my wife comes to sit down and she looks at the plate that's on the table and it just smells amazing and it's delicious. And I followed exactly the recipe of that, you know, amazing, famous fat chef that's on the Food Network. The only problem is my wife is deathly allergic to all shellfish. How's that meal going to go for us? And I can be like, well, I followed all the exact instructions of the guy that was on TV and I followed them to a T. And my wife is like, well, that's fine. But for me... Personally, this does not work because I will die if I eat this. We, we act like if I, just, if I just do some abstract set of rules from somebody, surely that's going to please God because we don't think about God as personal. If I say, you know, well, Matt, I'm looking across the anniversary table there. I just... I love, I am so thankful for your curly flowing brown hair. How's that going to go? Because my wife has straight strawberry blonde hair. Well, but I'm saying really nice things. Isn't that what matters? Yeah, except it's not true for her personally. Do, do you see where I'm getting at here? See, God is personal. And if we think about God in just some abstract sense, then sure, maybe you start to think, well, I'm not really that bad of a person. I haven't really turned my back on him that much, and sin isn't really that big of a deal. But if we begin to realize that, no, actually, this is all about the personal God 
of the universe who is an individual who has a name, who has given us what his desires are, what his wishes are, who has laid it all out clearly for us. Now, all of a sudden, the abstract that might work in general for everywhere don't matter because we have to ask ourselves, what did he actually say? What is his name and how are we approaching him? And if we just take as like one example, okay? One example, we see here, verse 19, it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, the whole world held accountable to God. No one, therefore, will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, it's through the law that we become conscious of sin. The law here is talking about just broadly the Bible, the Old Testament, but even if we zero it in on one example here, where God has laid out the God who is not abstract and just sort of nebulous out there, but the God who is real, the God who is personal, the God who has a name, the God who has laid out his particular desires. If we look at one spot, like the Ten Commandments, you could go to Exodus 20, where it lays out these Ten Commandments that God has given like his recipe instructions for how we are to relate to him, his, his name so that we know who to bring the flowers to and who to say I love to, you know, like we, the personal God of the universe in, in Exodus 20, he gives us the 10 commandments. If we just look at even a few of these 10 commandments, we are told not to use the name of God in vain. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a curse using the name of God come off your lips before? We are told to, in the Ten Commandments, never have another God other than our true living God, never to worship anything. You think back to the message a couple weeks ago that we heard from Pastor Nick in Romans chapter 1 and about functional saviors and how many other things did we chase after as though they are God rather than God? We, we read about do not murder, and Jesus sort of adds on to that and says, hey, do you know if you get angry with a brother or with a sister, it's like in your heart you've murdered them? Anybody ever been angry with somebody? In Exodus 20, we see do not commit adultery, and Jesus says, hey, if you even look at a lo- woman lustfully, it's like you've committed adultery within your heart. Anybody you ever looked at someone with lust? Oh, don't, don't lie, don't covet, don't steal. You've been spotless in any of those? I mean, I mean, you go through the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments, let alone all of the Bible, and, and what do you see? You see here the desires from our personal God whom we all fall short of, whom we have all failed against. These are an example of the personal standards of God. Not in some abstract way, but our personal God who has a personal name, who has real desires and feelings, who's given them to us. And we go through that list and we come out and say, I'm actually an idolatrous, adulterer, liar, murderer, thief. Who of us can stand up before Almighty God? We have all fallen so far short. As verse 20 says, through the law, 
we become conscious of our sin. It exposes us to see just how sinful we are. Friends, I said at the very beginning, this whole message, this whole text is about helping us to see how sick we are and to see that this is actually a gift, seeing how sick we are. How can that be? Well, first, it's because it's true. It is not better to live in denial. It is not, ignorance is not bliss for us. It is a true fact that we are all deathly sick and we are sitting in the lobby with a terminal disease and we need to be aware of that. And so it is a gift to us to have the word of God exposed. I am sinful and I am sick and I am in trouble. But here's the other reason why. The more we see how sick sin has made us, the more we savor the gospel and Jesus who saved us. See, Jesus came, and we are going to unpack all of this so beautifully in the rest of this chapter 3 next week. Join us. But we're going to see Jesus came to rescue us. Jesus came because we are so sick and he came to give a transplant, to give his body for us so that we can live. That's what he did on the cross. He came to lay down his life so that we can be rescued. He came to take our sickness so that we can be healed, friends. He gave up his body for our salvation. That's what he did on the cross. That's what he freely offers and lavishes upon each one who will give their life to following him. The more we see how sick sin has made us, the more we treasure the gospel, the more we treasure Jesus Christ. If we don't realize how lost we are, we won't even look for a savior. If we don't realize how sick we are, we won't even long for a doctor. But when we see how far gone we are on ourselves, it does not heap shame upon us. It sets us free because of what Jesus has done. It does not bring about condemnation on our shoulders. We have joy because of what Jesus has done. It no longer hangs over us as the weight of sin because we have been released. It does not have any more power on us because Jesus has set us free. Friends, the more we see our sin and that Jesus overcame all of it, the more we treasure him, love him, rejoice in him, and find freedom in him as people who have been healed and made new.